Hello, everyone, and welcome to Gay Men Going Deeper, a podcast series by the Gay Men's Brotherhood, where we talk about mental health, sexuality, and personal development. I'm your host today, Michael Diario, and I'm joined by Tim McCaskill. Thank you for joining us today, Tim. My pleasure, Michael. All right, guys, so I asked Tim to join us today to talk about community, activism, and pride. Tim is a longtime writer, activist, and educator. He's been involved with a long, long list of organizations that advocate for race, class, and sexual rights. Tim self-identifies as a, a political dinosaur. Is that what it was, Tim? I said a gay liberation dinosaur. Oh, yes, gay liberation dinosaur. So I will give you a brief summary of some of Tim's work, but uh, by all means, this is just a, a drop in the bucket. So Tim was a collective member of The Body Politic, which was a publication that fought for lesbian and gay liberation from 1974 to 1986. He was the chair of the Public Action Committee, which fought back against police raids in the gay baths in the 1980s. He was also a founding member of AIDS Action Now, and Tim has worked for over 20 years in the Toronto Board of Education, developing programs on racism, homophobia, and sexual harassment. In 1996, Tim received the City of Toronto Award of Merit for his human rights work. And of course, he's also published two books, his most recent being Queer Progress from Homophobia to Homo Nationalism. So as I said, this is just a selection of Tim's work. I, I definitely recommend you Google him when this podcast is over. Uh, so Tim, thank you again for joining us. Pleasure. So guys, by the time this podcast is released and in a few weeks, we will be on the eve of Pride Month celebrations. Now, I know from my own queer history that many Pride celebrations were born out of a need to express ourselves as a community. And a lot of times these celebrations came to be uh, as a way to fight for our rights and show solidarity in the face of adversity. So my first Pride was in Toronto in 2006, and I remember being new to the city, uh, coming from the suburbs, and being completely awestruck by the sheer magnitude of celebration, love, and of course, liberation. Now, I was also, this was probably also the first time that it dawned on me that the queer community by itself is actually very large political and economic force. And this was in 2006, so I know for sure it wasn't always like this. And that's one of the reasons why we have Tim here today. So Tim, that was my first Pride in 2006 in Toronto. I'm very curious to know, and I'm sure the, the listeners and viewers are curious to know if you care to share, what was your first Pride and what was it like? What was the mood? What was the atmosphere? Well, my first Pride was in 1974, August 17th, 1974. Um, and maybe I should do a little bit of backstory about how I ended up at that pride. Um, I grew up in Beaverton, Ontario, very small town, about a thousand people at the time in the 50s and the 60s. And so like not a lot of role models, not a lot of gay stuff going on. We are still very much the sin that dare not speak its name kind of world, right? So, um, you know, there was, there was one really effeminate kid in my school who was a sissy in public school and graduated to queer in secondary school and high school. Uh, and he was like harassed and teased and beaten up. And it was like, you know, like you knew you did not want to be in that camp, whatever that was. So um, 
then I went to university and fell in love with a guy and trauma, drama, trauma, drama, because I don't know how to deal with this shit, right? And I decided that it, it was just him that I was in love with, but I couldn't really be gay, right? Because I don't know, because. And I actually followed him to South America and uh, spent a couple of years there and came back in the spring of 74. You know, it, he was straight, right? He wasn't going to work out like anybody in their right mind would have known it was a disaster. But um, I didn't, right? You know, you're besotted. Anyway, so in the spring of 74, I come back to Toronto and I think I've got to... I guess I've got to come out or I've got to, I don't know what I have to do, but I, this is all happening in my head, right? Like I don't get to talk to anybody in the whole, excuse me, in the whole world about it. So I was terrified of bar. I didn't know how to operate in a bar. Um, didn't know what a bath was. Couldn't have conceived that. Um, but I started buying the body politic on the sly, reading it very surreptitiously in hidden places. And there was a ad for gay pride. Uh, August 17th and I thought well you know the, the, we're in the 60s and 70s right so the anti-war movement I've been in lots of demonstrations I know how to deal with a march right a bar is, is freaky but a march I can handle myself and so off I go to Allen Gardens hid behind the bushes for a while there were about maybe 50 people right uh, most of them most of them guys my age some women uh, maybe a few older people um, and they didn't seem that scary, right? They were just kind of your usual hippie types, right? Of the, of the age, right? Bad hair and all this stuff, right? Uh, and um, so as they started to look like they're going to get ready to leave, I just sort of walked over, picked up the sign that said like gay liberation or God knows what, and like trying, trying not to pass out. I went marching off to Queens Park uh, where there were some completely intelligible speeches, unintelligible spe speeches from my point of view, and then marched back to Allen Gardens. And the advantage of it being only 50 or 75 people was that I was immediately recognized as a new face in the crowd and picked up and taken home and had sex with and given a stack of gay liberation literature and told to come back when I'd finished reading, right? So it was like, I, I managed to I managed to enter uh, a community, right, a, a group of people, and soon, you know, within the year, I was, I was working on the body politic, and soon was a member of the collective. So, in terms of the atmosphere, I mean, people were young and happy, and it was a beautiful summer's day, and everybody was a little bit scared because you never knew quite what was going to happen. Um, and uh, on the other hand, this was like being in the streets was a real big thing because most of the world was deeply, deeply in the closet because it was really dangerous not to be. Uh, and so there was this kind of exuberance as well. Um, and, uh, you know, I lucked out uh, because I don't know how I would have managed to come out in any other circumstance. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that sounds very familiar to Pride these days, right? The exuberance, the, the, the summer day. Um, <laughs> Now, I would say that it sounds like Pride then definitely had a lot more of a, a political meaning to it. I'm curious to know, what would the 1974 version of you think if he saw our Pride celebrations today, 40 years later, 40 plus years later? I probably, I probably would think I'm, I've been taking too much acid. I better stop that, right? Um, 
I mean, I don't know how I would have I, how I could make sense of my 1974 version. I could barely make sense of the 50, 75 people who were there in 1974. Um, and to see something like Pride today, uh, I, I think it would have been kind of completely overwhelming as it is for a lot of people, I think, who come down for the first time, who are like trying to come out of the closet. And the difference would be that we were small enough, whereas I could be, you know, recruited right right then and there on the spot but you know it's i think if people come down to pride today and they're trying to find a way out of the closet you're lost in this crowd right i mean you're not likely going to be able to make a connection with anybody right or anything now maybe different for particular groups i remember when we were working with careers against israeli apartheid uh, and being in the parade, we would have uh, kind of young queer Arab guys come up and say like, wow, I've never seen <laughs> like, they could relate to it on a, on a political level that they'd never seen before. And like, we're very, very interested and like want to know more about the group and, and signed up and get involved. And so that kind of thing is involved. I think it's probably the same, same thing is true of Black Lives Matter. Like when you make that kind of a splash in the stand, you let people know where they can go. But I think generally, unless you're part of, uh, like, uh, you've got that kind of other aspect to your identity, pride can be pretty overwhelming these days. Yeah, I, I find that a lot of the criticism that I've heard of pride is that I guess what people see in the media is this kind of, uh, you know, whitewashed, uh, youth obsessed party image. Um, you know, pride is just about the parties. But you know, it's true that if you look deeper, there is a lot of events that are there uh, that still are very politically active and are very important. And it is sort of where this this was born from, right? Yeah, yeah, and it and it it produces a splash. I mean, it lets. I lived in a world where I didn't know that such a thing as a homosexual existed. Right? I remember I was in high school when they were debating changing the law in '68 or so, and the this hour has seven days. It was a kind of a, a edgy uh, news program that came on late at night on Sunday night. They actually had a homosexual to talk about this stuff. And that homosexual was backlit, so you couldn't see a face, and the voice was distorted, right? And that was my only, the only image I'd ever seen of these strange creatures, right? And so, today, when Pride is, you know, so normative in a certain way and so uh, so mainstream, I think that that probably does give people at least an idea that um, you're not the only one, and that this is something you could actually be. Yeah, and I love that. And let's talk a little bit more about this notion of community. So the Gay Men's Brotherhood was born out of uh, this vision to have this community of gay men where we could talk about things that were more than just uh, that surface level hooking up. We could talk about, uh, you know, that, that journey from shame to authenticity. Um, a place for personal development to talk about these kinds of things, including, you know, spirituality, uh, personal uh, growth, all, all these great things, which we don't often necessarily uh, talk about <laughs> on a given uh, Grindr app or, or Tinder app or whatever it is that we're, that we're communicating with men. So I would say, you know, being one of the admins in this group that it is as important now as it was then. Um, mm -hmm. When I look back, I look at history. I mean, I read Cleve Jones's um, autobiography, which was, you know, very, uh, I think very well written, but I get that this this coming together really came out of adversity and challenge. So, uh, you know, after the raids in Toronto, after 
or during and after the AIDS crisis. So there's this, the way I see it, like from my perspective is that it came together from this working together to protect our collective rights. <laughs> then today, in my experience, my lived experience, what I see is a lot of a, a fractured community. There's, there's a lot of us that are infighting. We see a lot of differences instead of the similarities, like it's hard for people to work together. There's a lot of those dissident voices. So I would like to know how has, like from, from your perspective, because you've actually, you've actually lived through all of these generations, how has it evolved over these generations and, and what does the word gay community even mean? Okay. Um, so at the risk of going off theoretical, and there's really two ways you can look at this notion of community. Um, I, mean, I think the, the philosophical term is the community in itself and a community for itself. So the community in itself is are these kind of networks of people who, you know, if you put a little tracker on them, you would see all these crisscrosses, right? They would be connecting in, in particular ways, whether it's hooking up or whether it's going to the same restaurants or going to the same social services or whatever, right? So you can see this web of connections which produces a community, but that's not one that's necessarily conscious of itself, right? Uh, or one that even produces strong identities. And then there's this community, the notion of community for itself, where that community does become actually conscious that people who are part of those networks begin to recognize that part of them as something important to their identity and, and who they are. And even can then decide that they want to develop some sort of political approach to change the things they don't like about the way they're they're being treated right the community that i came out to in 74 was also pretty fractious right remember 74 there wasn't a lot of repression repression i mean yeah you had to be you had to be careful of the police because they would take you down to cherry beach and beat the shit out of you at night and things like that and you had to be uh, take care of like young street when the bars closed because then the queer bashes would come out but um, it wasn't like it happened in the 80s where things started happening really thick and fast. So in those early days, there was a big division between men and women, right? The women were mostly uh, into the feminist movement of some sort. They were uh, interested in, in women's issues in a way, and the men tended to be more interested in sexuality issues. And, you know, so lots of fights there there were divisions between this kind of small group of activists around the body politic and the gay alliance towards equality and the other political groups. And this new class of gay entrepreneurs that was beginning to develop places along Church Street, right? Because the old bars had been on young, straight owned. And so by the late seventies, you saw uh, a new group of people uh, trying to develop uh, services or places for gay people to gather that were outside of those pretty, um, oppressive straight places sometimes. Uh, and, you know, the activists wanted to rock the boat and the people who were trying to establish businesses didn't want any boats rocked, right? They wanted things, they wanted things to be kind of calm, right? There was a huge division between, I guess, the activists again and the kind of your normal, you know, bar and bath queens, right? Mm -hmm. Who would be living largely, depending on a bunch of factors, but largely in the closet because it was absolutely crazy not to be living in the closet. You know, you could lose your job. You could lose your, uh, you could be thrown out of your apartment. You could be refused service in a restaurant. I mean, you know, you would know any kinds of, any kinds of protection, right? And so, you know, you thought about it. The, ba the way to survive as a gay man was to be like on the down low, right? 
you lived a straight life and then you, you know, on the weekends, maybe slipped down into what we called the ghetto. People talk today about the village. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, whereas their world revolved around maintaining the closet, the activists were all about coming out, right? And so there's a real heavy cultural clash there. Yeah. And then I suppose there's all sorts of other kind of divisions as well, your own race. Um, but in 1970, if you look at demographics, Toronto was 95% white, right? It's a, you know, 150 years of racist, explicitly racist immigration policy <laughs> does that to your demographics. And so, whereas there certainly were uh, BIPOC people around in the community, um, they were very, very, very few. And so they might have experienced alienation and division. Nobody else hardly noticed, right? Because there wasn't a kind of a critical mass for them to say, like, what the fuck's going on here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and there were class divisions too, except remember Toronto in those days wasn't the kind of divided city between rich and poor as it is today. It was like 70% of people were living in middle income areas. People generally had an adequate income to live their lives. Now, yes, there were poor people and yes, there were rich people, but the the um, the ratio of those demographics is really different. If I think like 20 some percent of people in Toronto were living in below average income areas in 1970, whereas today it's like 53, it's like half the city. It's like, so, so there were class differences, obviously, but you know, we still all ended up going to the same places because nobody was rich enough that they could fly off to Cancun for the weekend, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody was poor, so poor that they probably couldn't afford one beer anyway. So we'd all end up in the same bar. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was a kind of a fractious community. Uh, and it wasn't until the bath raids, it wasn't until the 80s when really the shit started hitting the fan where they had, rec- they had, they had noticed us now and now they were out to kind of crush us that um, people suddenly had something very real that they shared, right? No matter which of those groups that you were in, right? If you were, uh, like when the bath rates happened in that night when 3,000 people the following night came out to the streets, we activists were astounded because we'd always been kind of snobby about these people not being out enough and yada, 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 right? And like all of a sudden when these people felt that their spaces were being invaded, they were quite political. They were quite willing to come out, right? And they realized, like, somebody had to organize these damn demonstrations, and who knew how to do that except for the activists? Right. And the entrepreneurs, who before had been hanging back, thought, like, we're going to lose our businesses, right? Because they're, they're, they're hitting in the baths. They're also putting pressure on the bars. Like, we're going you know, to be forced out of business. We're all in the same boat here. And so everybody started working together for that period. And then AIDS came on the uh, at the well the end of that right what 83 before the shit really started hitting the fan here in toronto around aids and once again um you know that was something that was affecting everybody right this uh i mean certainly there were the social determinants of health and things like that but uh you know whether you were rich whether you were poor uh whether you were a new immigrant or not right you got this virus you were going to die that was just it you were going to die there was no medicine no cure no nothing right and so that brings you know what they say nothing clears the mind like uh, hanging in the morning right I mean that brings people together as well Um, and then I guess there's probably a third stage uh, in the 90s late later 90s when it becomes around in 
occlusion, right? But again, that's a different story. So let me let me not go steering off on that tangent right now. That's uh, I'm, I'm very curious to know, Tim. What was it like? You touched you touched a little bit about the bathhouse raids, and and at least yeah. here in Toronto, it's you know. Uh, definitely a turning point in our queer history as a, as a city. What was it like? The bath raids, right? Yeah. Or the, yeah. the bath raids, yeah. The bath raids. Well, I was, <laughs> I wasn't in the baths that night. Um, I had, I, I'd only been to the baths maybe once before, right? And I had gone back to my very spotty university career and was like working on a, you know, another credit, right? Another one of these credits that was taking forever. And I had an exam the next morning. And so I had spent the night doing kind of economics equations, like you change the price of socks and what happens to the price of corn kind of things, right? Mm. And, or vice versa. And so I'd gone to bed early and I got a knock on the door, a roommate knocked on my door and said, uh, Gerald Hannon from The Body Politic is on the phone and says, he's got to talk to you. And I said, well, talk to him in the morning. I'm going to sleep and I'm, I'm, half, I'm half asleep. And the roommate said, no, it is serious. You've got to come down here and talk to him right now. He's not waiting. And so I went down, crumbling, you know, groggy. And he said, they're raiding all the baths. Get your ass over to the club baths and find out what's going on, right? He was in a taxi heading off or he wasn't in a taxi at that point because there's no cell phones, right? He was attached to a, a landline someplace, but getting ready to take off and look at what was happening in, a, in the other baths. And so me and one of the roommates kind of walked across this freezing cold night across uh, um, Allen Gardens, famous Allen Gardens, uh, to the Club Baths, which is now Oasis uh, at, um, yeah. at uh, uh, Mutual and, uh, and Carlton. And there were the cops. And uh, they were, the metaphor that I find myself always using, they were like a, a pride of lions in the nature program who have just got their gazelle, right? And they're all sitting around being very, you know, smug and uh, happy with themselves. And so they weren't paying any attention to anybody who was coming around at all. And they started releasing people, some on their own reconnaissance. And so I started interviewing them. And uh, the people that I talked to were like terrified. Like they didn't know what, where they, where they, I remember this one guy almost in tears, uh, Portuguese accent. Um, I'm assuming probably had a family and stuff. And he said, like, is my name going to appear in the paper? Right, because that's you know, is my life going to be over? Is what he was asking, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so I, you know, spent the night there that night, kind of trying to take statements from people who would talk to me, and others just like were just like so freaked out they were just taking off, um, and uh, didn't do so well on the exam the next morning, and uh, raced after the exam down to where the meeting was happening about what the hell we're supposed to do around this, and they had already decided that they were going to have a demonstration uh, that night. And I said, you already have your minds. How can you organize a demonstration for tonight, like 12 hours from now? Um, you know, demonstrations meant you phoned your friends and told them about it one at a time, because that's the only way that worked, right? You made a poster and put it up on, you know, hoardings, right? So that people would see about it. And after a couple of weeks, people would know that that's where they were supposed to come, but like overnight. And I remember Chris Burchill, uh, this feisty dyke who was uh, on the Body Politic Collective said like, forget it, it's happening. This is front page news. Everybody knows about it. Um, people are on the phones right now. We've got posters being prepared. They're gonna be up in uh, the next hour. And by the way, 
you're supposed to be helping organize the marshal to keep everything cool. Right? So that's your job. Go off and figure out a way of doing that, right? And so I can remember wandering over to a church in Wellesley, uh, it's very young in Wellesley at um, probably 11.30 or so, it was called for eight, thinking like, if there's only 50 of us, we're going to get killed. And this is like, not metaphorically, like if the police don't get us, the queer bashers are, because you don't do a demonstration down Young Street at midnight on a Friday night, right? That's like, this is madness. Um, but uh, within a half an hour, there was such a huge crowd that we blocked Young Street and the sound system finally arrived and people were like hopping mad. And that was, was the biggest demonstration ever had been seen in Toronto. Um, and we just took that street and marched down to 52 division and almost you know, had a standoff with the cops trying to guard the, you know, they were, they were shoulder to shoulder trying to guard the uh, precinct, which they were sure that we were going to burn down. And then we went off and almost burned down Queens Park and, you know, the riot went on, went on, you know, probably till three or four that morning. So it was a very invigorating moment. I can't even imagine what that would be like. Um, but it, it speaks to, again, this bond that is formed what, what it seems to me like there's this bond that, that is formed when we are when we have a struggle we have a collective struggle and during that it forms a bond so when that struggle disappears so when you've done the work years over years and, and that doesn't happen as much anymore how do you maintain that bond so you know we talked earlier about that fractious community we still it was then right as you said just as it is now what would you say can take a fractured community and bring it together in a way that isn't necessarily coming from adversity or is that the only way? Well, I think that there are things that you can do. Um, there used to be dozens and dozens of all volunteer driven organizations in the city, right? Around a whole range of issues, whether it was, you know, hiking or knitting or, you know, like politics or, or whatever. And they would bring people together. If you look at what's going on today, there are, a handful, there are a handful of aid service organizations and some other social services, but maybe like one or two kind of community driven groups, like volunteer groups where people just get together and do shit, right? Um, not, not very many at all. Um, so I think that those kinds, uh, like building those kinds of organizations, like the one that, that you're building here, kind of an online uh, thing, um, help shift that community from one in itself, just a, a blind network to one that is for itself, one that recognizes itself and kind of understands itself as a community and one where people will you know, watch each other's backs and, you know, where there's a kind of a community ethos, right? Like, I remember like in the early days, people could be like really, really bitchy, you know, bitchy queens, right, to each other, right? But nobody would ever out anybody. That was, <clears throat> that would be monstrous, right? To expose somebody else in this group to a very hostile outside world. No, no, you did not do that. You, you trash talked all sorts of people, but but like uh, betraying somebody was like beyond the pale. Nobody would do that. And if anybody did that, then, you know, they were seriously shunned, right? They could, because, you know, you could, they couldn't be trusted, right? They could do it to you next, right? And so you, you needed this kind of solidarity in order to, in order to survive. Um, so there's that kind of ongoing work, I think, that can lay a foundation, just like the kind of work that had been done in the 70s laid the foundation for the response in the 80s. If we hadn't done that, 
uh, you know, struggling against the, the stream for all that decade, where there wouldn't have been anything in place to respond to the police attacks. There would have been like police raids that had happened for years that, you know, people just pled guilty and like hoped that it would go away. Um, and so I think the kind of work that you're doing is important for that. In terms of like general large community mobilization, I do think that that comes from adversity. And I don't think, I think it's naive to believe that, um, that it's, it's solved, that we don't have to worry about that anymore. We've seen over and over again, um, quote unquote, minority groups that have been generally included and well integrated that suddenly become a target. Right. I mean, think of Jews in Germany in the in the in the 30s. Right. Mm -hmm. Probably the most um, sophisticated and well integrated Jewish community in all of Europe. And suddenly, bang, they were the other. And suddenly they became uh, a focus of all of this kind of completely irrational hatred. Mm -hmm. And that could happen again to us. Right. And if we don't have if we don't have something in place to respond, we could be in really, really deep shit. Yeah, rights. Uh, I forget. I forget who the quote is from, but you know, I, rights aren't rights if they can be taken away. Those are just privileges. Mm. Um, they can all be taken away. Right. So, you know, it's, it's important for us not to take that for granted. I think when I say us, I mean like people that came sort of after after the baths and after AIDS. Um, so I think it, it is important for us to realize that that can just you know, be taken away seemingly quickly overnight. Um, you know, this is a, a fictional show, but if you ever read uh, read the book Handmaid's Tale or watched the program, it kind of speaks to what could happen. Um, and it's to me, I mean, Margaret Atwood does a great job of making it a very plausible scenario, right? And that's very scary, right? That could happen to anybody. I have a kind of thought experiment that I ask, ask people, right? Just to kind of, and I don't know the answer to it. It is an experiment, but when they raided the baths, uh, you know, people came out, right? What would happen tomorrow if the government decided for public health reasons or whatever excuse that it was going to close down Grinder and Scruff and all the, all the gay hookup acts, right? Mm -hmm. Would people go out into the streets? Have we developed the kind of networks there that would produce a response? I mean, that would be a huge attack on our, you know, fundamental networks. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question, right? I'm... That is a good question. And, uh, you know, I, I've never thought of it that way, but I mean, it could happen. I mean, I've been in countries where you can't even use Grindr. You have to use a, a VPN to get it at. So I was in Indonesia. You couldn't use that. So you had to find other ways to, to hook up, to talk, to communicate. Yeah. And we know that in, 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 you know, things get into a crisis regimes. The first thing they do is close down social media. Yeah whether it's Facebook or, you know, Messenger or, you know, whatever, right? They, you know, that gets closed down. And so if they decided that gay men were like somehow a dangerous threat, right? Or a political party got elected, right? They right. decided that, um, then, you know, they pull a plug. Yeah. And what would we do? That's that's a great question. I mean, I, I know that our our gay community, queer community hasn't really faced that level of crisis. So we would probably look to history to our past to see, okay, what happened then? And how can we recreate that? What lessons have we learned? How can we do that again? The benefit now, of course, is, you know, you know, you're saying you had to use posters and landlines, whereas we have the benefit of technology, which hopefully would still be, be useful. Yeah. <laughs> 
Very interesting uh, thought. Maybe that can be a, a good plot for a book or a movie one day. <laughs> okay, so um, Tim, um, another question I had was about um, the school of thought that the need for a distinct gay community or queer community is not necessary anymore because uh, we have been so normalized uh, in, in the community. So for example, we can look at the decline of queer villages or ghettos all over the world, not just in Toronto, but we're seeing this decline of it becoming a lot more uh, heteronormative, a lot of the queer owned spaces moving out uh, due to gentrification or other reasons. And, and the, you know they're spreading all over the city. So what do you think about that? Hmm. I guess you have to think about what spaces are. I mean, as the spaces that we're talking about are um, like actually actual brick and mortar spaces, right? Actual streets, actual like, uh, what's the word? Um, Non-digital spaces, right? And so we shouldn't maybe get so hung up on on, on those actual physical spaces in that way. Um, I mean, I'm thinking, my partner was pointing it out. Um, we've got one of these little truck fit things at the foot of our street, you know, the bars, the gym things, right? Because right. nobody can go to gyms anymore, right? And so there are these two gay guys down there who like, they're probably in their late 30s, right? They're like all over each other all the time, right? Like, you know, like working out and hugging and kissing and it's like, oh, it's, it's, I'm trying to think like, shit, if we had done that anywhere, like on the street in my day, right? You would have been dead neat, right? And yet these guys have like absolutely no fear. This space is, it's, it's not a gay space. It's, there, it's a gay space, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you're right that we, on the one hand, take up a lot more room all over the place. Um, and I think that that, I mean, that is a good thing. It does, it does normalize it. I mean, all the other jocks that are there, you know, pissed off because they can't go to the gym, see these guys and like, listen and learn, right? Uh, this becomes part of, part of their workout routine. Um, once again, though, like what happens if there's a crisis, right? Uh, because then all these people are kind of exposed in a, in a certain way, right? I mean, pulled together. So um, I think it's important for us to make our spaces, um, you know, as a, an old dinosaur, I still like um, analog spaces, right? Like real spaces in real time. And I don't, I don't use the, the apps, but like the baths are really great, right? That's where you go and you can meet all sorts of people and have really inter interesting conversations, usually after you've had sex, right? Because then they're more, you know, they're more relaxed um, and kind of like really feel the pulse of what's going on in the world, right? Um, in, a, in a gay world. Uh, but, you know, spaces like you're creating here, digital spaces and virtual spaces, I mean, those are real, real places as well. And so they are bringing people together. I don't know if we, I don't know if we understand the strength of those connections yet, um, but they, we didn't understand the strengths of the connections in the baths in the old days, right? We thought they were just there to fuck. And then it turns out they developed networks and a real sense of politics and were willing to defend their spaces. So. So, you know, I've been wrong before. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a very good point. I never thought of that too. I, I would probably do the same and dismiss things like uh, virtual spaces as having that same clout. But again, we're in it right now. We don't have the benefit of yeah. retrospect looking back. Um, but I mean, I've lived in Toronto's village since 
2000 and when did I move to Toronto? 2007. And I mean, the number of bars that have shut down, especially lately, it's been like amplified um, over the last years. And when Fly, I, I loved Fly. I was a huge fan of Fly. Um, I loved the bars. I, I loved the, the music scene. I love that it was a queer owned space. And they had things like a dark room and they had all the, all the good things that come with a queer space. And, you know, when it shut down, I, for one, was, you know, there's the nostalgia factor. And then there's also the, wait a minute, where, where are we going to go? We have nowhere else to go. There are other bar spaces, but they're not, it's not the same. It's not queer owned and operated. It's not in the village. And a lot of people said to me, it doesn't even matter. Like, it, yeah, so then you just go to this other place. They have they have a dance floor. And like, it's not just about the dance floor. There's something to be said for having a space built, a brick and mortar space built just for us. Yeah. And I think that, the, I mean, the processes that are going on that are, are corroding those spaces that we had, the brick and mortar ones, <clears throat> it's not just a matter of us not needing that anymore because we don't have to because we're not restricted to a certain part of the city, right? I mean, there's also factors like gentrification going on and increasing land prices that you can't you can't run a bar or a, like a place like Fry Fly anymore. Or if you build a 60-story uh, building full of condos, you're going to make a lot more money with that little piece of land. Yeah. And so what I think you're seeing in the city is not so much internal to the gay community, not needing or even wanting those spaces like think of your experience, but it's uh, economic factors that are uh, destroying small businesses all over the place and uh, converting um, space that once was ours into very valuable space for people with lots of money. Yeah. And that, I think that is where my first, um, I don't know if I want to call it my inkling towards activism came in is when I started seeing all these go down like dominoes and I got very um, defensive or I just, I just became very aware um, so a question for you then, how does one become an activist? Like a regular, what was your trajectory? No, let's start there. What was your trajectory? So, well, I mean, there's, not, there's nothing, nothing gay in Brock District High School in Cannington, Ontario, right? For sure. Right. But there was the anti-Vietnam War movement. And I can remember I went down to a, a concert by a, a singer called Phil Oaks, who at the time was as important as Dylan, right? but who was like much more clear in terms of the politics and somebody gave me an address of somebody who was handing out anti-war pamphlets and I took these pamphlets back to uh back to Brock District High School and started handing them out and my god the school thought there was like a communist had arrived like what in the world is going on here um and when I went to university as well like not a no gay politics of any sort but um started working more on campus kind of socialist groups and uh, anti-war stuff was still going on uh, and it wasn't much environmental stuff but there was a lot of anti-nuclear uh, work going on in those days and so uh, you know I had those skills and inclinations under my belt um, before I came out and so for me the politics of gay liberation was like a bridge because I'd been involved in um, other liberation style politics in other areas and so i knew that that's why i could end up at a march rather than a bar right? right that was something that uh that i understood so that was my trajectory that uh i didn't i didn't move into the commercial scene at all probably for more years and i didn't actually start to go to the baths regularly until you know after the bath raids because i was spending so much time kind of keep these damn places open i thought maybe i should check them out <sighs> um, 
So um, that was a, uh, the fact that I had that kind of experience under my belt had to do with a particular political moment, right? The 60s and the 70s, there was all of this stuff going on, you know, student power, black power, women's liberation, right? National liberation, you know, st stopping, the, stopping the war, ending colonialism, right? All of that stuff was like bubbling, kind of the way that it's yeah. sort of more bubbling today. Yeah. Um, and so that's that was the environment that I grew up in. And I brought that to the community that I found myself part of, the gay community, um, when I came out in the seventies. That's that's incredible. And you're right, there are a lot of there are a lot of areas that that struggle still exist today as we speak, right? So where do you think for all the progress that we've made as a queer community, and starting with gay liberation and going forward, where do you think the the fight is now for us? You know, I think that I mean if we really wanted to I don't want to say like get back to old time religion stuff, back to gay liberation. But the notion around gay liberation was that we were going to transform society, not just be included in it, right? Mm -hmm. Not just have the acceptable ones of us be included in it yeah. uh, so that we can have our own TV programs and be a TV star. Or we can be our own politician, right? Yeah. Um, but like transform the way things were working. And so there was as I mentioned before, those other other movements for social change and liberation, women's liberation and uh, black liberation and the Panthers and you know, the national liberation struggles and like gay men's part was like the sex part, right? We, we were, you know, this is this is kind of our, our part of the division of labor and other people were dealing more with racism and other people were dealing more with gender stuff and other people were dealing more with colonialism and, you know, but we were all kind of in the same parade in a certain way. Yeah. So what would be a politics then that would put us in the parade with other people that have a stake in transforming society rather than just being included in it, right? And I guess thinking about it, the, it's the question of inequality, which is both corroding our own community because people live different, very different lives now. I mean, if you're a, a young gay kid out in Etobicoke, you're not going to come down to the gay village because there's no fucking transit, right? <laughs> How are you going to get there, right? And it's going to be expensive. And, you know, people are going to look at you funny anyway, right? Because it's all white guys that are there, right? Um, so it would seem to me to be a, if, if kind of if LGBTQ people could say, let's, let's try to figure out a way that we can engage in a politics to challenge the kind of growing inequality that's in our society in all of its different aspects, right? So that, because we recognize, I mean, that's our issue because if we don't, then our community fragments along those lines. Uh, and therefore to keep a strong community, we need a community where people are living in the same boat, more or less. Mm -hmm. um, and so what kinds of politics and alliances does that actually bring us to? Who, who's our, who are our friends? Who are, you know, who are we opposed to? And some of the people that, you know, are really good on gay rights, right, are really bad on equality, right? You know, I can be grumpy, but, you know, Mr. Trudeau makes his apologies for, like, bad stuff that they did, you know, 50 years ago. I think probably a lot more queer people would re receive direct benefit if there was clean running water in all indigenous communities across the country, right? So like, I'll give up that apology for something really concrete that's gonna affect people's lives, 
right? Because all that apology does is it's an attempt at it's an attempt at corralling our votes and you know, like uh, virtue signaling that you know I'm the progressive one as opposed to the conservatives, which are the bad ones, right? But uh, you know we're being we're being mobilized for their benefit rather than us actually mobilizing to change the world in a way that's going to affect people in our community. Yeah, that's a solid, solid point. It's like we've, if we have won our rights or our liberation in terms of sexuality and and in that regard, what about everybody else? What about on the lines of race and class and, and all yeah. these things that you're talking about? So, yeah, it's it's great to have that uh, perspective, and I would I would agree with that personally myself. But I'm curious to know what was that transformation that that was in mind back then? Was it was it that like the the sense of equality and equity? It was, I mean, it was a slow transformation. The, the liberation movements, as I said, were kind of part of this global liberation stuff. Yeah. That gave way fairly early on to this notion of rights. And so people like you needed something really concrete to to organize around, right? You you could walk into the bar and you know talk to people about liberation, right? And they'd like, what? <laughs> they, they would get it, right? But to say like, it'd be nice if you didn't get, you couldn't get thrown out of your apartment, right? Or fired from your job. I mean, that's yeah. kind of really concrete. And so that's why we, that's why there was this shift. And the idea was that as we got that, that would produce a bigger movement. And then we could go on to deal with these deeper things, but we didn't, right? We just sort of went on, got on that rights trajectory. Um, when the bath raids came, it was all about self-defense. And then afterwards, it was kind of these kind of legal, once again, even more legal rights. So you look at the 90s, it's all about raising money to pay lawyers to talk to the Supreme Court about why we should get married. Mm. Um, right. And so that doesn't, you know, people, people, only the people who got the money are the ones that are really being mobilized in a certain way. And like what happened to Agal, if you look at uh, that history, in 2005, once they got the marriage thing, I mean, Agal at that point had, I think, 13 staff, paid staff, and was bringing in about a million dollars a year in donations. And it was like marriage happened and somebody flicked the switch. And within like months, they were down to one employee and couldn't afford an office because mm -hmm. the money stopped. And that didn't mean that there weren't other issues, right? For parts of our community that were still probably even more uh, burning than a right to get married, right? Uh, but, you know, once we kind of went up that path and reached the end of it, then there was no place left to go. Right. There's always work to do. It sounds like, it sounds like when we can't just take care of ourselves and say, okay, well, I'm set. So peace out. <laughs> like I'm done. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the other thing is, is around the world, right? My, my partner is from the Caribbean and I know from him that they are far, far behind in terms of where we are here in Canada. So it's easy to take a lot of that for granted and think, oh, well, what I see, you know, queerness is normalized, we say, but not everywhere. And there's a lot of people around the world who are suffering still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and like my partner is actually from the Caribbean as well, right, from Trinidad. Yeah. And there's a bit different from other parts of the Caribbean because there's, I mean, there is a very active movement there now. Um, and it's kind of really embedded in, in, in Trinidadian culture in, in a way that, uh, uh, say, in other places, um, it's not so much the case. Uh, so yeah, there's all sorts of stuff coming around the world. And then we get into a, a whole other level of difficulty is like, what do we here do to actually assist what's going on there without becoming kind of colonial about it, without yeah. us kind of 
imposing our models of how things should be, what the you know what the process uh, should look like, um, and that's a really really difficult one because the because the response to all of this stuff. And I don't know if you wouldn't remember the uh, um, the murder music campaign and murder music. It was about uh, particular kinds of uh, reggae coming out of um, out of uh, Jamaica. That were like all sorts of really homophobic lyrics, and um, so this campaign developed in in North America to say like you know stop this stuff from being played. Uh, and then at one point in Toronto, um, it was a community meeting, and people said we needed a boycott of Jamaica to like put pressure on them. And boy, that really screwed up the Jamaican gays because now they were allied with these foreigners who were trying to cut off our money, right? Mm-hmm. And so they end up saying, please, like, end this boycott because you're making our life much, much more difficult. And it wasn't like the intentions on either side were wrong, but the kind of the power and the ability to do that that came from a developed community here in a developed uh, country when imposed on somebody else seems an awful lot like, you know, those old Europeans trying to tell us what to do again, right? Those Americans trying to tell us what to do again. And that produces a kind of a reaction which then results in homophobia. Right. Yeah, I didn't even consider that. Yeah, very, very good points, Tim. Um, okay, so we here are almost at time, and um, I wanted to know what's what's next for you. I mean, you have such a long list of achievements and, and organizations that you've been part of. Um, what's next for you? Where where are you off to next? What are you working on now? Can you share anything? With you? Well, I'm doing more writing now as I get uh, as I get older, right? Um, because. Well, and part of it, the, the, the means of communication and stuff have changed so much that old farts like my like me just don't, <laughs> it's like really harder to, make, to, to know how to intervene and do this kind of stuff. Whereas a whole new generation, I mean, this is, this is your, your world. Your world is more, more virtual. So, I mean, I've been doing a bit of work around um, the notion of reopening the baths in Toronto. Um, like wanting to make sure that if baths reopen, they reopen safely. Yes. Because the problem is that baths, um, they don't have a, their own category, right? They're like gyms, they're like restaurants, they're like hotels, right? And so, you know, if they can meet those qualifications, then maybe they can reopen. But what goes on in baths is not like what happens in the gym or the hotel or the restaurant, right? I mean, people yeah. are going there the second fuck and all that kind of stuff, right? And there's no social distancing and like, what does that mean if these places open in a way are we you know producing danger into our communities we're trying to get public health to think about like what a real safe reopening of baths um might uh, might look like um so there's that I, I don't know if you've noticed too but i'm also fussing about this crystal math stuff right mm-hmm. i think that um the kind of harm reduction approach which waits for people to start using and then tries to reduce the harm, right, is like not adequate to deal with the kind of crisis people are being, people think that this is kind of like weed or something like that, that they can play with, right, and it's a really, really dangerous drug from what I've seen in the community, in the baths with friends of mine, right, who just gotten, have gotten into like really serious trouble with this, and I think we should be doing the same kind of prevention work that we were doing during the AIDS epidemic, telling people like, don't get HIV, right, you use a condom, like avoid this stuff, um, that's not happening, right? We're sort of waiting for people to get into trouble and then trying to fix it. And that's not, 
it's not good medicine or it doesn't build community either. So those are two things that I've been kind of uh, fussing with um, recently. It's, it's very important work. So again, I want to thank you for all of your work um, from way back in the 70s uh, all the way to today. Um, it's so important that we have people like you. And I know there are a lot of other uh, activists and, and political people out there who are advocating for us and never give up, give up that fight. So I want to thank you personally, um, because I know that I stand on the work that you've done and on your shoulders. So thank you so much for all of your work here. Yeah, you're more than welcome. I mean, it wasn't like a great sacrifice in a certain way. Like it was, a, it was a, it was a trip. It was a ride. It was fun, <laughs> exciting, right? So, like, yeah, I can't think of a. I, I think a, a calm and sedate life would have been far more boring. Yeah, and, and I mean, clearly, I don't, I don't know if you want to share how old you are now, but you're not living a calm and sedate life necessarily now, even either. <laughs> I am seventy years old, and I'm wondering, Jesus, if I go back to the baths, like when they finally do reopen. Will I have any traction? I mean, what I, interestingly, you know, I found when I was in my 50s, uh, it was going downhill, like, okay, getting close to my best before date kind of stuff. And then when I hit 60, suddenly I was a daddy, right? And all of a sudden I was in demand again. So I don't know how long that lasts, but I'm going to milk it as long as I can. Right. When, when does one become a daddy? So fun fact, the day that this podcast is released uh, will yeah. be my 38th birthday. What would you give, what advice would you give someone who is, who's just turning 38? I don't know. I mean, I think old people shouldn't be allowed to give a lot of advice to younger people. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I never listened to anybody old told me, right? And in, in the old days, right? They just always seemed really strange. Um, so I guess just I mean, live your life to your, the fullest. Be, be bold. Take risks um, and recognize that Nobody is just, nobody is just one thing. We're living in a world that is really far up and um, it is important for people as gay people to be part of that change and not part of the establishment just because it has managed to include us now and give us a few, um, a few figures that, uh, seem to let people think that we've arrived because um you know a lot of us still are at the back of the bus right that's a very good point thank you thank you tim Uh, i'll take that to heart as i as i continue (laughs) on my journey okay so before i wrap up uh where can people find you and your books um find me i don't have a website or anything because i am dinosaur uh i've got an email uh uh, Tim underscore McCaskill at hotmail.com. Please don't send me hate mail. Um, and uh, the books are available at Glad Day um, if they've got them in stock. Um, but you can also get them online uh, through the publisher, uh, Between the Lines Press, BTL Press. Uh, so it's Queer Progress. And the other one, if you're more interested in education and anti-racism, is, um, is uh, Race to Equity. Um, so they're available there. I'm on Facebook, right, Tim? M-C-C-A-S-K-E-L-L on Facebook, too. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm around, but um, I still tend to live in the non-digital world more than the digital one. Fair enough. Hey, there's there's a great demand for these non-digital spaces these days. I know a lot of people who wouldn't go to a, you know, a, a bar f- before, but now they're like, I cannot wait to get back to sitting on a patio, talking to my friends one-on-one. So I think uh, there's going to be a renaissance for, for that space. Okay. 
Um, I want to thank all the listeners and uh, viewers out there. Thank you so much for joining us on this conversation of Gay Men Going Deeper. If you are not already in our Gay Men Going Deeper membership community, please uh, join the waitlist. Community is one of our pillars of that uh, group. So we do a lot of work and we do a lot of coaching on the sense of community, how to belong, how to be accepted and how to accept others. Um, also, if you're not already in our Gay Men's Brotherhood Facebook group, please join that. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please go ahead and click the subscribe button, click the like button and go ahead and, and comment uh, below if you would like to uh, give us some feedback on one of Tim's questions, which was, you know, what would happen or what would you do if all of a sudden the government decided that things like Grindr and Scruff were, were no longer something that uh, we could use. I wonder what that reaction would be. So curious to know from you guys on that. So again, thank you, Tim, so much for joining us today. And thank you, our viewers and listeners. See you next time.